Now, use your pew Bibles to, or your own if you want, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. I do want you using your Bibles. We'll be looking at a a number of texts again today. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. This is in your pew Bibles, page 1204. And then we'll go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 1 to 18, which is page 1208 and following. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, remember this was written by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of God um, at a time when Nero was the emperor of Rome, and, and he was uh, quite, a, quite, a, quite a person and not a good one. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13, be subject to for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And I want you to think about what those words mean, to those who do evil and to praise those who do good. How do you define those words? For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And you ask, what does that mean in an age when we don't have an emperor, at least in our land? And then the very end of the book of 2 Peter, Peter's second letter, chapter 3. Read the whole chapter. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. This is the language of of the flood that inundated the world that you read about in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. But the same word The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth 
and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people or lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all together we say, Amen. Nan, our daughter in the Lord from China, who's away this weekend, uh, Nan is a, uh, a very, very special gift in more ways than one to the Shishko family. Um, Nan has been God's gift to make me realize how little I know about preaching. Uh, remember, English is not Nan's first language. And while she's very, very intelligent uh, to listen to a sermon with a lot of content in, in not her own languages and to try to figure it out is quite a challenge. And um, Nan has said it graciously at points, but in, in so many words at points, she said, I didn't understand a word you were saying. So it's really been a good lesson for this man who's been preaching for over 40 years. And, uh, and, and last Sunday, when we were talking about the message, because Nan is wrestling with... <coughs> working with the politics of her native country, China, um, I realized in speaking with her that when I used the word politics, Nan was thinking of a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, and political candidates when the word politics um, really conveys a whole lot more than that. And so... Um, and Nan will listen to the message, I know, uh, on sermon audio. But, but let me, that the title of the sermon is Putting Politics in Perspective. And by politics, po the word politics comes from the old Greek word polis, which means the city. And it, it means a, a body of citizens and their conduct together, in the most general word, that's what politics is. We used to call it civics in the United States, the body of citizens and their conduct. Or, as we narrow it down a bit more, public matters, especially as they affect the government of a body of people. Okay, So that, that's kind of a little bit narrower definition. Or even more narrow, ways of guiding and influencing the formation or direction of government. That's also politics ways of guiding and influencing the formation 
or direction of government. Or as Nan was thinking of it, and as we very often will think about it, in the narrowest sense, political parties and their principles, their platforms, and their personalities. And so that's what we're dealing. We're dealing with putting politics in that broadest sense of the word, a narrow sense of the word, into perspective. And uh, Philip Yancey, uh, with whom I have some differences at points, but in his very helpful little book, Christians and Politics, Uneasy Partners, uh, Yancey writes, a caution in no other arena is the church at greater risk of losing its calling, which is to make disciples, than in the public square, or we would say in the, in the political arena. Now, I'm not going to review the material from last week and those four points for a number of reasons. Number one, I would be inundating you with points. You don't need four other points that I covered over last week when you're going to have three more coming today, and it would take too long, and I am working on trying to make things as concise as possible without, without uh, giving short shrift to the subject. And uh, so if you weren't here last week or you need a review, you can listen to the sermon on sermonaudio.com or you can get the handout that was given. Um, I do, though, want to remind you again why we're focusing on first the, Peter's first and second letters. Remember that all the, all the books of the Bible have purposes to them. Some are more obvious than others. James, for example, in the New Testament is dealing with the relationship of works and faith. Uh, the book of Galatians, making sure you know what the gospel's about. Uh, when, you, when you read the, the, the book of Romans, it was designed to give an overview to that church of, of everything about the gospel. So that's the, that's the purpose of these books. Peter, remember, is writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And what do you mean by that? These are Christians who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and they were surrounded by pagans. And so Peter's writing to them under the inspiration of God is specifically designed to let them know, if I could put it this way, how to put their own politics into perspective. And that's why we're culling things from First and Second Peter, and in your own studies of the topic, while you don't confine yourself to First and Second Peter, you really want to spend time thinking about what Peter wrote to the Christians in the midst of pagans and how it applies to today. So and we'll get into that more today. And never forget, and then we'll get to the points, the focus of the New Testament is not on political leaders and politics, not, not the, the earthly realm of political leaders and politics. But the focus of the New Testament is on Christ and his church. And you see that, especially in Peter, uh, where probably 98% of the material, if not more, uh, deals with the way the Lord's people are to function together. Okay? And as I mentioned last week, and then we'll get to the points, the first step to putting politics in perspective is don't put politics first. Never. You're to set your affections on things above. Here's your politics where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. How do you regard this world? You died. In Christ, you died. And your life is not first in an American citizenship or Chinese citizenship or whatever. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, 
And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. So always keep that in perspective. Stop in order to put politics in perspective. Never, never put politics first. Okay, now let's get to the points. You've got them in your outline. You can fill in a few things. I left you some space for some notes. Number five, because we covered four last week. Number five in two parts, okay? The New Testament commands to Christians apply in any culture, government, or political situation. That's just part one of this. The New Testament commands to Christians apply in any culture, any government, or any political situation, which is part of the beauty of the, of the New Testament. It is designed, the Holy Spirit will be writing to, to generations of Christians, and the commands to Christians apply in any culture, any government, or political situation. But here's part two. But there will necessarily, and there must necessarily, be more interest in politics in our nation. Now that's not a common way for evangelicals to approach this. They'll say, oh, the New Testament doesn't deal much with politics, and neither should you. That, folks, is a very, very, it's not just simplistic. With all due respect, it's an utterly careless approach to the whole topic. Because, and we'll see the reason in a moment, there will necessarily and must necessarily be more interest in politics in our nation. And remember, you never put politics, that politics first. That's the first, the first principle here is that we, to put politics in perspective, don't put politics first. But there will necessarily and must necessarily be more interest in politics in our nation. Now, why, why is that? Our government, and I know this is not a political science class, um, but, but what do we mean by our government, our politics? Our government was formed under what was called a social contract theory of government. Uh, you don't have to get into the history of it. It came out of the writings of, of John Locke. Um, but social contract theory of government. See, we don't have an emperor in the United States, as we learned last week. Social contract theory of government is governments derive their just powers not from one monarch or one quote-unquote sovereign under the Lord. Governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's in the Declaration of Independence. Or, as Abraham Lincoln put it in the Gettysburg Address, it is government of, by, and for the people. That's not an empire. It's often called popular sovereignty. Uh, the people are, under the Lord, the sovereigns. They are the ones that ultimately are responsible for the development of the laws of a land. Now, I don't happen to, as best as I understand it, and I'm not a political scientist, but I am a theologian, I'm a pastor, I don't happen to agree with the social contract theory of government. Governments don't derive their just powers from the, from the, from the consent of the governed. They derive their just powers from God. But that's 
not the governing structure that I'm under. In the same way, if you're an, under an emperor, you honor the emperor whether you like that or not. So whether I like or agree with it or not, we are under this structure of social contract in the United States. But think about it. If it's government of, by, and for the people, and you're part of the people, then there will necessarily and must necessarily be more interest in politics in our nation, period. All right? But there's more reason for that, not, not just the way our government's structured. There's another reason. It's to honor the principles that undergird the government of our nation. And this is a fascinating study. If you go way back to 1215 AD, which is even before I was born, <laughs> the Magna Carta, the Great Charter, uh, which was formulated in large measure by Christian leaders and saying to the king in 1215 AD, you don't have ultimate authority. In fact, it even begins with the king by the grace of God. And things like property rights, the right to a trial, the right to have credible witnesses if you're accused, all of these things came out of the Bible. And those principles of the Magna Carta are embedded in our own constitutional standards in the United States, and they're based on the Christian faith. The formation of our land was based on not just freedom, I hear, as I heard last week, what freedom is, and quite frankly, I was nauseated. Freedom isn't the freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom is the freedom to do what you ought. And the United States was founded based on, above all else, the freedom of worship, so that we could, regardless whether we're Presbyterians or Roman Catholics or now in our day Muslims, you are free to worship according to the dictates of your conscience and the standard of your religion. Checks and balances in the Constitution, an executive branch, a Supreme Court branch, court branch, and the legislative branch. I'm not saying this because I'm a Presbyterian, but it came out of Presbyterianism, in which we have checks and balances between a session, a presbytery, and a general assembly, all right? So, so that formed our nation, or helped to form it. Representative government, again, is based on the scriptural principle that there's the calling of what we call elders, they call them aldermen, elder men, who represent the people and what's done. And, and I'm just, that's, just, that's just touching the surface. So when we say honor the emperor, what we're saying is we are to honor the constitution of our own land. And one of the reasons we will necessarily be more interested in politics is because it is government of, by, and for the people. But thank the Lord there is a rich Christian tradition in our own standards that we need to appreciate. This does not mean we are a Christian nation. Now, brothers and sisters, there is a lot of confusion because people throw around terms without defining them. American exceptionalism. Pray tell, what do you mean by that? 
a Christian nation. Our founding fathers, in most cases, would not be able to be received into membership in an evangelical church. Now, they were informed by Christianity, deeply so. But that didn't mean they were, they were specifically Christians. They couldn't get away from the capital of Christianity, but it wasn't a Christian nation. Now, again, they would have had no idea of a Hindu nation or a, or a Muslim nation, but it was a nation in which there was freedom to worship. It's a nation informed, and, and please, folks, say what you mean and mean what you say. When you're I remember when I was in Egypt, and it was a Sunday night, I preached in Egypt. A young lady came up, and, and, and she was a widow. She was all dressed in black, and, and, and she was very upset that an American had preached in their church. And, and she was really upset. You don't get Egyptians upset. <laughs> but, but, and so she was insistent how... Can the United States, as a Christian nation, have such a prevalence of divorce? How do I communicate to this woman who didn't speak English, although I had a translator, we're not a Christian nation? But that's the way she thought of our country. All right, so be careful. Don't, as a nation informed, by Christianity, and in fact, even by Protestant Christianity, or even if you want Reformed Christianity, and even if you want to go further to a large extent, Presbyterian Christianity, but it's not a Christian nation. Okay, so be careful. Therefore, now, let's look at your text, okay? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 14. So what does that mean for saying there will necessarily or there must necessarily be more interest in politics in our nation. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. After speaking about being subject to every human institution, so for example, uh, standards for driving, you know, stop signs and speed limits and so on, whether it be to the emperor, we don't have one, to the emperor is supreme, our constitution is the supreme doctrine, or to governors is sent by him to punish those, now here we go, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let me ask you a question. How do you define good? I want to suggest to you that on our culture's base, you cannot answer the question. You can talk about something that you might enjoy for a moment. You can talk about something that might make you happy for a moment. You can talk about something that you think is a desirable end. There's no way you can prove that it's good. In order to know what good is, you should know the source, and I believe that the scriptures teach that God is good. How do you know what evil is? Why is it evil? I suggest to you again that on a non-Christian base, you can talk about certain things that are unpleasant, but why are they evil? And does evil go beyond an earthquake or a fire? 
In order to define evil and good, you need to go to what God says in his word. That's why the apostle will say, you are to do good. How do you know how to do good? I do good according to God's word. You're in part of a government of, by, and for the people. And you and I have a responsibility to, insofar as we can do it, see our government on every level informed about what is good and what is evil. Period. It's not a matter that there's a common sphere in which we're not to have a say. I don't see that taught in Scripture anywhere, especially if you're to bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, that's why we must necessarily have more interest in politics in our nation without putting politics as the first thing. Now, what does... And, and see, Romans 13 teaches the same thing. You don't have to turn there, but when, you, when you're reading it, listen... Listen to what Paul says, let every, same as Peter, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In this case, we have a Democrat president, we have a predominantly Republican House, we have a Senate that's, you know, that, that's, that's ordained by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In any situation, any government, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What's good conduct? What's bad conduct? How is a ruler to be a terror to what is bad and not to what is good? Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. If he's God's servant... He should govern according to what God says is good. Now, will he always? No. But that's, that's the standard, is the ideal. It's like Jesus saying, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. We'll never be perfect in this life, but that's the goal. That's the standard. Now, let's. so I, I think you see that. I hope you see that from the Scriptures. What does that mean for you? You need to be interested in political principles, parties, and personalities. It is wrong if you don't, because you are part of a country of, by, and for the people. Thoughtful attention to political principles, parties, and personalities. Don't say it doesn't make any difference. Do good and evil make any difference to you? If they do, then you will give thoughtful attention to political principles, parties, and personalities. You will discuss these things with one another, with other believers, with non-believers. You are bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now again, it's not first, but it's connected because of the government that we have. You will vote because that's the most direct way we have some say in the government, and that's a privilege that we have, you will call for change. Why? <laughs> because the side of heaven, there's no perfect government, and there's always got to be change. And that's why, and, and, and brothers and sisters, I don't want to slight for one moment the sins of past generations. I, I, don't, I grieve over them, and it breaks my heart. I also realize that every culture has its sins. All right? And, and so your work 
is not to condemn, it's to bring about reformation. We'll get to that in, in just a moment, to bring about change. Now, this does not mean that you say, I will only vote for Christian candidates. Please don't say that. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, I would rather be governed by a wise Turk, a wise Muslim, than by a foolish Christian. That's right. What, how, as you listen to the person, how does that person think of good and evil and what leadership is to bring about with respect to that? And please do not say, as I've been guilty of saying, I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils. Folks, government in itself is not evil. And candidates in themselves are not evil. The question you ask is, whom do I believe will best lead in and further good and hinder evil? Whom do I believe will best lead in furthering good and hindering evil? And Christians are going to disagree on this. Get it in your head. In my pastoral theology class the other day, one of our students made the point, profound point. He's from the South. And he said, down South, if you voted for Joe Biden, people ask if you could be a Christian. You go up to New York, and you say you voted for Donald Trump, and people say, how could you be a Christian? <laughs> and there's an example in stark contrast of the fact that Christians will differ on these issues, but you wrestle with the question, I want to say it again, whom do I believe will best lead in furthering good and hindering evil? And we have our discussions in the political realm, in the discussion of politics, in that way. And I go even farther with it. We all have priorities of what's good and what's evil and so on okay so anyway that but that's that's just the point christians need to be working with one another to see the word of god informing and transforming our political system and this is happening in other countries and mentioned egypt before the christians there are in a distinct minority they divide among themselves when it comes to something like the way we speak to government. They're toast. They're done. And so whether it be Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, on those areas, they are co-belligerents. They may not be allies theologically, but they're co-belligerents and they work together. And we've got to get to that point in the United States of America. But he's an Arminian. All right, maybe he is. In theological issues, we can deal with it. This man has an understanding of the scriptures and political science. Learn from him or from her. Okay? Christians need to be working with one another to see the word of God informing and transforming our political system. And given the fact that this is against the backdrop of a culture that's clueless, with respect to what's really good and what's really evil, this is a tremendous opportunity for Christians to be able to think through good and evil and the role of government and see it impl implemented. Now, as one person put it so well, you need the skill of an ethical surgeon to know how to apply 
biblical or moral principles to society, you need that skill, but it must be done. Now the abortion issue, and I realize we've got the abortion abolitionists out there, and they're not pro-life, they're against pro-life, they're basically everything from the point of conception on, got to protect the child, and you do whatever it takes, and it kind of scares me to read what they mean by whatever it takes. <coughs> Brothers and sisters, I know this is a nasty reality, but it's a real one. And politics means you do the best you can to implement what is good and what is evil, and you move along. William Wilberforce, who was the, the force behind the abolition of slavery, whose name is claimed by the abortion abolitionists, William Wilberforce was a patient man, and he worked for incremental change. And I know this grates people. I can't stand the thought of any child after the point of conception being killed in the mother's womb. I also realize you've got to work in various ways to see good actually implemented, and some states are trying to do that. We're not revolutionaries but we're reformers. That's the key to Paul's understanding of slavery. People will say, why didn't the Apostle Paul just blast slavery? He dealt with it indirectly, the book of Philemon. When God's grace converts someone, that person becomes a brother or a sister. You don't enslave. You don't abuse a family member. And that gospel leaven, that gospel yeast, did bring about, in not too long a time, the abolition of slavery in the Roman Empire. Later, later it was reinstituted. It's a whole other story. But folks, that's the way we're to live, not as revolutionaries, but reformers. Here's an ouch quotation. I fear that our clumsy pronouncements, our name-calling, our hysteria about important issues, in short, our lack of grace, may in the end prove so damaging that society no longer looks to us for the guidance it needs. All right, now how you do this is quite a challenge. That's why we need one another. All right, so that's all under the point. The New Testament commands to Christians apply in any culture, government, or political situation, but there will necessarily, there must necessarily, be more interest in politics in our nation. Okay, now, number two, and these will be a little bit shorter, or actually number six, of the, from four were last week. Number six, always be careful that you don't equate or confuse our nation or any earthly nation with the kingdom of God. All, now, see, now you see how these are connected. If you see that our nation in a particular way has enjoyed the blessing of being informed by the Christian faith, you see how easy it is to go the next step and confusing our nation with the kingdom of God, you say, well, how do you do that? I'll give you a couple. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. That doesn't apply to the United States of America. 
The United States of America is not a people who call on the name of God. Hello? The language was to Israel or the church of the Old Testament. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I wish I could say that of the United States of America, but I can't. The reference there is to the people the Lord has chosen. It is referring to his church. That's what the kingdom of God is on earth. Okay? Now, why do we tend, why do we tend to equate a nation, especially our nation, with the kingdom of God. And, and all people tend to do that in one way or the other. It's because within us, folks, there's a pope, there's a devil, and there's a Pharisee. And what did the Pharisees do? Pride of religious background, pride of nationality, pride of tribe. We are Abraham's seed. That's the Pharisee within us, pride of nationality, pride of place, pride of race, pride of tribe, pride of family, pride of custom, pride of our time. Our time is the most enlightened ever. All the debater in me comes out to be able to show that it's very difficult to prove, and even that itself is begs a lot of definition. But anyway, white supremacy. Unless you want to say rank pride is a virtue, don't you ever equate that with the Christian faith. Never. And besides, what do you mean by it? What do you mean by white supremacy? Now, there are things that are particular blessings in a white culture. What do you mean by a white culture, anyway? Folks, humility is the position before God, not, not supremacy of race, nation, or anything else. But especially in the USA, we can equate or confuse our nation with the kingdom of God. Why? Because of the rich blessings that we have enjoyed because of Christian and Protestant influence over decades. And we have. You don't have to be embarrassed about that. Property ownership, prior to the, especially in the, in the United States of America, the introduction of a written statement that you owned certain property. There was nothing like that. And everything regarding real estate, or most of it, was dealt with very capriciously. Well, those property rights, Eighth Commandment, as we learn today. Encouragement of industry, the Fourth Commandment. You're to labor six days and rest one. Just weights, that grows out of the Old Testament standard of just weights and measures, so that when you go to get a gallon of gas, there's some test that shows you're getting a gallon of gas. That, that's weights and measures, which comes out of a biblical worldview. Trial by jury. You can't be accused except in the mouth of two or more witnesses. That's based on what the scriptures say. And even all people are created equal. And that statement's fraught with, with, with debate. 
No, everyone is not created equal. There are people that have certain deformities. There are certain that have mental deficiencies. There's others that have mental exceptions, exceptionals. Okay, made in God's image? Absolutely. All people are created equal. And you see how that in our country has... has and, and Yes, there were changes. Yes, there was inconsistency when it dealt with slavery. But you had, if I could put it this way, the guts of truth that helped to begin to make change in our culture. All right, So, so that's why there is a tendency to, to make... To, to not make necessarily make our, our nation into a, a, an idol of, of the kingdom of God, but to idolize it. Now, what is the kingdom of God? Its earthly expression, folks, is the church. The kingdom of God's earthly expression is the church. Now, look at 1 Peter 2 and verse 9. And the same page that we were in before. Listen to how Peter describes the church. You're a chosen race a royal priesthood, whoa, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're called to worship, and from Revelation 1, we're called a kingdom of priests of people who worship God and serve God. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, is the church. God God is the Lord of the church. And you and I must always fight in our own hearts to keep that nation first, above even the United States of America. Yes, I'm so thankful for our nation and in many ways love our nation. In many ways, my heart breaks over our nation. But the first nation is the church, the kingdom. I love your kingdom, Lord, the house of your abode, the church, our blessed Redeemer bought with his own precious blood. And so it's not only because it's right that you keep the kingdom of God first, because Jesus bought it with his own blood, and because he loves his church, but listen very carefully. Doing this, putting the kingdom of God first, a holy people, presents the only culture, call it a culture of grace, the only culture to truly counter the destructiveness of a culture that is under God's wrath. That brings us back to last week and the first point. Doing this, putting the kingdom of God first, presents the only culture to truly counter the destructiveness of a culture that is under God's wrath. And here, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14 is, is really the classic text. And the reason this is important is in Philippi, if you are a citizen of Philippi, you are the creme de the creme. Of, of Roman citizens, because if you were a citizen of Philippi in Greece, you were also a distinguished Roman citizen. And against that culture, Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding 
fast the word of life. And he refers to the return of Christ in there as well. The church, folks, we've said this, the church, if it's going to be the church, it's got to be a counterculture. It must be that. It must not ape its culture, but be the true counterculture. Now, now let, me, let me just let me paint the picture of what that means. As you go through First and Second Peter, there's dozens of descriptions of the church, the kingdom of God, just a selection of them. The terms that are used for this holy nation, grace, life, love, brotherly love, peace, joy, humility, the knowledge of God, sober-minded, virtue, self-control, watchful, firm in faith. That's a culture of grace. Think of it again. Love, brotherly love, peace, joy, humility, knowledge of God, sober-minded, virtue, self-control, watchful, firm in faith. Is that what the haven's all about? That, that's real counterculture. Now contrast it with this language. That's, that's culture of grace. Contrast it with the language that Peter uses, and I'm just picking some of dozens of the language that Peter uses of this world, this age. Sensuality, defiling passions, drunkenness, orgies, lawless idolatry, exploitation, greed, irrational animals, slaves of corruption, destruction, death. Do you see the two cultures? Do you feel the two cultures? What's the default in your culture? Again, if I can use Nan as an illustration, um, where we, the Shishkos are learning an awful lot about Chinese culture. And it's fascinating. It really is fascinating. And so we'll be at the table and we'll be talking about something we don't think about. It's just it's our default, the things that we do in America. And Nan will say, well, well, in our country, we do fill in the blank. And she's not saying that they're better or that we're better. It's her default is to think about the culture she's been brought up in. And that's, that's understandable. Is that your default with the culture of grace? When you, when you fall back on the character you're meant to have, is it grace, life, love, brotherly love, peace, joy, humility, the knowledge of God, sober-minded, virtue, self-control, watchful, firm in faith. Is it that? Mm. Or is it sensuality, defiling passions, drunkenness, orgies, lawless idolatry, exploitation, greed, irrational animals, Mm. slaves of corruption, destruction, death? If that's your default, you need to run to Christ right now. Because running to Christ is like running out of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
and it's running into him and hiding yourself in him that you're safe. And I want you to see the power of that counterculture. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Beloved, Paul, Peter now, now he comes to the imperatives, the applications of these things, including the fact that we're a holy nation. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, sojourners, you're a pilgrim, you are heading for your heavenly home. Exile, you are not in your heavenly home. Your citizenship is in heaven, but you're here on earth. Beautiful use of language. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you realize that? Folks, do you love this world? Do you love people around you when you realize they are destroying themselves by giving in to the passions of their flesh? that wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the purpose of Peter's writings, honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will. We don't have time to cover the dynamic, but it's here. The more you faithfully follow the Lord, the more you will get opposition. But they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation that may return to return they refer to the Lord's return at the last day certainly is included I think what this is saying is there's going to be a day God by the Spirit visits them and they are finally being open to say what is real what is good what is right what is life If they've seen your good deeds, they have a light at the end of their dark tunnel. So so that's why there's such power in all of this. Uh, You see this so powerfully. If you read, uh, and we're going to use a different word in a moment, the Auka Indians in Quito, in in Ecuador, and, and when Jim Elliott and four other missionaries went in the early 1950s to seek to minister to them, they were slaughtered by the Aukas, the savages. That's why they were called the savages. And those missionary families, counterculture, culture of grace, they set up shop in that area, even though those savages had killed spouse or father. And for years they labored showing the love of God to the Aukas. And many of the Aukas savages were converted so that now, and I know I'm not pronouncing it properly, I tried and I still couldn't get it, but I'll do the best I can. The Warani people, they're not savages anymore. They're a a distinct people that's been influenced by the gospel. Why? They saw a culture of grace where those missionaries were planted among the savages. As one person put it, somehow the paramount command to love, even to love our enemies, gets lost. Seeing this, the watchful world often finds itself repelled 
by outspoken followers of Jesus rather than attracted to them. Ouch. Are people repelled by you or attracted to you? Last Sunday it was so encouraging. We had a couple of visitors that were with us and one of the ladies said, well, as far as the worship goes, they got here a little bit late, didn't think much of that, but she said, I'd go back there to be with those people. That, that's the kind of thing that you want to see. All right, and then the last point here. Never let your hope and confidence in the perfect world to come, which is the only perfect world. Every attempt to try to make a perfect world here ends up in tyranny. Every, even when it's Christians who try to do it. Never let your hope and confidence in the perfect world to come, which is the only perfect world, be dimmed by the clouds and storms of this world. What are the clouds and storms of this world? Again, Peter's language. Afflictions. Opposition. Suffering. Destructive heresies. Lawlessness. Debauchery. And so many others. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 gives a a large catalog of these things. But then he adds, don't ever forget this. You don't say it with gloating, you say it with weeping, but it's true. There is a self-destructive power of evil. That's why if you're living in a state of disobedience to God, you are in the process of destroying yourself. Because Paul ends that, those words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 by saying, but they will not get very far. For their folly. You realize we're dealing with foolishness in our culture. It's foolish for a biological man to say he's a woman. Feelings change in a fallen world. We get that. A biological man is a biological man. Biological woman, biological woman. You work with kinks that come. Anything else is folly. But their folly, their folly will be plain to all. And incidentally, it's becoming that way very quickly in our culture. The Lord, what do we sing in Psalm 33? The Lord brings to nothing the plans of the nations. He frustrates their counsel and makes their schemes you believe that now with that let's end on what you do look to see remember there's always the sun in back of the clouds folks don't forget that the sun in back of the clouds here is the perfect world to come second peter chapter 3 beginning at verse 8 but don't overlook this one fact beloved that with the lord a day is as a thousand years a thousand years is one day The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's long-suffering is the great atmosphere in which we live, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. They will be refined perfectly, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire, again, it's a purging fire, and dissolved, all that is dross will be dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here's Pastor Shishko's simple definition of righteousness. Everything is right. Everything in the new heavens and the new earth will be right. Never the side of glory. But there it will be always perfectly right. Now, I want you to be encouraged as we wrap all of this up. Now, this, this was so encouraging. Again, from Philip Yancey, whose little booklet, Christians and Politics, Uneasy Powers, is, is, is helpful in, in many ways. Uh, but, but Philip Yancey has this. Oh, this, is, this is great. Even in post-Christian societies, which ours is, the gospel will continue to do, I love this, its subversive work. Jesus used small things to describe his kingdom. A sprinkling of yeast that causes the whole loaf to rise. A pinch of salt that preserves a slab of meat the smallest seed in the garden that grows into a great bush in which the birds of the air come to nest. Practices that used to be common, human sacrifice, slavery, duels to the death, child labor, exploitation of women, racial apartheid, debtors' prisons, the killing of the elderly and incurably ill have been banned in large part because of a gospel stream running through cultures influenced by the Christian faith. Once salted and yeasted, society is difficult to unsalt and unyeast. Isn't that great? Just taking what Jesus says about his kingdom and applying it. And let Peter have the last word in Second Peter chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing all of this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. And all of God's people said together, Amen and Hallelujah. Our wonderful God, thank you again for the reality check of your word. And Lord, we, we thank you that in your perfect wisdom, as we receive from the Holy Spirit working through, working through the pens of human authors, thank you that 
two of the books of the New Testament were penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we might learn how to put politics in perspective. And we pray that these two messages would do exactly that so that we keep our priorities straight, so that we remember that the church is, above all else, a rescue mission in the world. And remember as well that it's not any emperor, it's not any political system, it's not any political party, it's not any political personality, but it's Jesus Christ, who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and in whose name we pray, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, Amen. Amen.